Welcome to Just One Q. I'm Dr. Melissa Horn, a diversity, equity, and inclusion expert and advocate. In this podcast, I chat with industry experts about the latest trends related to diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace. Each week, I ask just one burning question tied to current events. Our goal is to leave you with the tools you need to drive change in your life, both personally and professionally. So the shift to remote work last year was a major disruptor, challenging the way many of us work. At the same time, it also opened up a lot of opportunities for innovation and rethinking equitable and inclusive practices. For example, last season, we spoke with Wanda Deschamps about the ways that the sudden shift to remote work has accelerated uh, much needed changes for neurodiverse employees as employers and people leaders have had to rethink and adjust their traditional ways of working. The shift to remote work has raised similar opportunities for HR leaders to rethink their approach uh, to talent acquisition. And as many companies start 2021 with a mandate to improve upon their inclusive practices, starting with the way companies search for and acquire top talent will be imperative to demonstrating their commitment to making real change. So for today's Burning Cue, I'm asking what can employers do to ensure that their hiring practices are inclusive? And today here to answer our question, I'm joined by Dean Del Peach. Hi Dean, thanks so much for joining us today. Hey Melissa, thanks for having me. I really, really appreciate it. So just a quick bio on Dean. Dean is a diversity and inclusion strategist who has spent more than a decade focused on innovation, talent management, and creating frameworks of equity for organizations. He's a professor of diversity in the workplace at George Brown College and is currently the senior manager of talent acquisition and diversity at Fix Software. And he also runs a consultancy called Stracity, where he helps organizations design a strategic framework focused on diversity, inclusion, belonging, and equity. So, Dean, I want to ask you, what can uh, employers do to ensure that their hiring practices are inclusive? Yeah, so when we're looking at hiring practices, I think the first thing is, number one, just acknowledging the fact that there is potential for bias within any of the hiring process, such as your job description, the interview process, the selection process. I think acknowledging and coming to that understanding, I think, is is, is probably the first step uh, in the process. The second step in the process is beginning to analyze each part of your hiring process. So let's just take your job descriptions, for example. A lot of time, the research tells us that females will typically apply to positions when they have 90 to 100% of the qualifications, whereas men will apply when they have 60 to 70% of the qualifications. So if you have a job description that has 10 bullet points about responsibilities and you know, you know that only five of them are really relevant to the job at the present time, you might be missing a whole host of candidates that could be applying to your position, but don't because they see it and then they turn away and say, it's not for me. So making sure your job description is optimized is just one step in ensuring that you appeal to a, a diverse group of candidates. There's several other steps in the process, but that's one way of analyzing, you know, a best practice when we're looking at how we create greater diversity in the in the application pool. A lot of uh, startups and tech companies will put development ninja, or they'll use kind of fun words like these, you know, rock star or whatever these things that are trying to convey their company culture, but are actually really uh, masculine gendered terms and phrases, and so basically signaling to potential female applicants that this may not be the workplace for them. 
Do yeah. You, oh, a hundred percent. I mean, I've seen, I've seen exactly what you're talking about. And, you know, when I do consulting with organizations, one of the things that I tell them to do is, Hey, listen, you know, it's better to focus on more of a gender neutral, gender balanced job description. And again, it depends on the role, but it's better to focus on that. And so taking maybe words like instead of using strong or dynamic, you know, use words like exceptional, right? And to, to appeal to a broader base of, of individuals that may be seeking employment. So absolutely know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. I always laugh when I see those. It's like, I don't want to. <laughs> I know. I do. I want to be a ninja. <laughs> no. No, I, I mean, I, it, I, but I never realized that until I started doing a bit of research into the, into the topic that, you know, what, what looks like or seems to convey an atmosphere, a relaxed atmosphere is actually doing the opposite or, or it's not, not that it's not doing the opposite, but it's basically just signaling to folks that this is sort of a male dominated culture, right? Right. Well, what, one of the one of the uh, terms that is used, especially in sales organizations, when it's more male dominated, is the is the terminology of bro culture, right? right? And that's and that's kind of what you find develops when you know we don't start at that even just that ground level base of how we appeal to applicants. Maybe something else I can mention, Melissa. Yeah that we do, you know, typically on job descriptions at the bottom, they'll have a, a statement that says, if you require accommodations, please let us know. I fix one thing that we inputted was something called an equity statement at the bottom of our job descriptions. And what that equity statement does, it encourages applicants from diverse experiences and backgrounds to apply to the job, even if they don't feel like they have all of the credentials. And it's, 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 it's not lengthy, but it's probably a paragraph long of encouragement to four people. And one of the things that we found in tracking applicants coming in is we, we asked them a question based on, you know, if that statement helped appeal to them to apply. And what we found, Melissa, is over 50% of our applicants have said, yes, that statement actually caused them to apply to our role. And about 21% said it, it somewhat was a part of making the decision. Okay. So you got to think about it. You got to think about it logically. 70% of our candidates potentially may not have been there unless they saw that equity statement, right? Okay. So these are some things that you can do to really, really improve just on the job description. The other thing that I've heard about around rethinking job descriptions is also looking at your education qualifications. Do you require a master's degree for something that you, you know, you don't need it? And how does that sort of exclude folks who would actually be qualified, but deter them from applying because of the, of the barriers around education? Right. We actually moved education to the bottom mm-hmm. of the qualifications on purpose. <laughs> and it's really just to make sure that we highlight the actual real qualifications that are necessary and let people know that, you know, having, whether it's a, a bachelor's degree, a master's or a PhD in the, in the context, it, it depends on the role, but in the yeah. context of certain roles is great to have, but it's not necessarily mandatory. So, yeah. Okay. So first is recognizing that there is bias within the system. And then the second one is sort of one of the first steps you can take in, in terms of that is actually reviewing your job description and figuring out where you might have inadvertently put bias into those job descriptions that thwart your, your goals to be more inclusive. So reviewing the language, um, looking at 
the qualifications, and then also thinking about where education sits in that, in terms of the context of the actual position. Absolutely. All right. So those are two things. I think you have a few more. Yeah. I think the next thing that I would look at is in the actual interview process, for example, ensuring that you have, whether it's, I would call it more than one marginalized candidate in your pool of hiring. So an example could be you have four or five finalists in a pool, mm-hmm. making sure you have you know more than one woman in that pool, make sure you may have more than one racialized person. So there's an actual research study that was done by Stephanie K. Johnson called the two in the pool methodology. And what they discovered is that when you have just one individual in your pool of finalists that might be marginalized, let's just let's just say a, a woman, for example, there's zero chance typically of that one being hired. But if you have at least two, you ha- your chances of hiring uh, a woman in that case goes up by about 79.14%, right? Yeah. And in the case of someone who's racialized, if you have at least two people in the pool, it goes up about 193%. So ensuring that in your candidate pools, you have marginalized representation will increase and improve your chances of hiring marginalized people within your organization. And so that's another step that companies can also take. What about folks who say, you know, I've tried, but I just can't find good candidates. You know, what do you, what do you say to those folks who are saying, you know, I've, we really want to be diverse, but I've seen the applications and I just don't, just haven't found any of, you know, a certain group of people, you know, what do you say to that? Or how can companies rethink even just how they're sourcing candidates? Yeah, hundred percent. In recruitment land, we call that post and pray. You post up the job, you pray to see, see if you get the right candidates that come in. Right. And what, and what that leads to is it leads to whether it's recruiters and hiring managers saying that there's only a limited talent pool yeah. of candidates. I don't know if you recall the CEO from Wells Fargo, Charles Schwarf. He was in the news back in over the, the late summer because he had put out a statement saying, hey, we would love to hire more black applicants, but there's only a limited pool of yeah. talent. And you know he got kind of crucified for that. But the problem is that that is a bias that we see, and that's the way we think, and it's mainly based on post and pray. So an alternate route to that is creating partnerships with organizations that can create a pipeline of talent. So in Toronto, for example, in the technology scene, you have the Black professionals of technology that can create a hiring pipeline for you. In the financial industry, you have the Urban Financial Professionals Group that could create a pipeline. What about in regards to the LGBT community? You have organizations like Venture Out. When you look at skilled migrants, you have skills for change. There's so many different partnerships that you can partner with that can actually bring a fresh pipeline to you of candidates that normally and typically wouldn't apply. So the the, the key isn't that it's a limited pipeline. The issue is is that you're not seeking after the pipeline and you're not going to the right places, right? And so, and so that's an example of a way to, to, to really, really go after candidates that just come from uh, marginalized backgrounds. Well, that's super helpful. We'll have to post uh, the names of the 
uh, groups that you mentioned on our blog with the podcast, we were chatting about the idea of how the more marginalized candidates that you have within the hiring pool, the more likely uh, that one of those candidates is to um, be hired on. Yeah, absolutely. And um, as I said, it's been conducted in research. And uh, I think if companies can just increase in each of their roles, the pool of candidates. And one thing I do suggest too with this, Melissa, is creating an applicant diversity survey. And so when a candidate applies to your position, asking that candidate demographic questions. Now, doing it from an optional standpoint is, is the key. But for example, when a candidate comes into our pipeline, they are asked if they'd like to complete an optional survey. And that optional survey is outside of our applicant tracking system. It's connected in, but it doesn't, it's connected anonymously. So it's not necessarily linked to the candidate profile. And the candidate can let us know, you know, you know, race, ethnicity, age, sexuality. So we have a a host of demographic questions. And you would think that candidates would not want to fill something like that out because they may feel like it's it may add to some form of repercussion in the future in their application. But believe it or not, Melissa, we've conducted the stats and over the last six months alone, we've had over 92% of all of our candidates who come into our system fill that out. And so you got to imagine the kind of data we have with that now. So I could tell you per role, you know, what the gender split is. And if, for example, I'm finding that 80% men are applying to this role and only 20% women, I could go back to my job description or I can go back to all the different sources that I'm finding these candidates, or maybe I have to put up new employment branding messaging. Right. So, so, you know, I think it's, it's also, you know, so, so typically recruiters have different metrics that they look at, but they don't ever layer those metrics with understanding the diverse makeup of, of their talent pool. Right. And I think these are ways that you can do that to help you to create greater success in your talent pool. That's really interesting. I hadn't, I wouldn't have thought of having that applicant survey and, and you're right. You wouldn't think that folks are, you know, we, we get bombarded with emails and surveys and stuff all the time, but the fact that, you know, you're reporting 92% of, of applicants are filling it out. That's fantastic. That's, and that's on average. That's true. Yeah. yeah. That's on average over the last six months. Mm-hmm. Wow. Cool. Mm-hmm. All right. So what else do you have for us? Probably maybe, you know, tip number four, if we're there <laughs> would be, would be, you know, Looking at like more a more structured hiring or interview approach. So number one, you know, okay, great. We have these candidate resumes in now. We've appealed to, you know, a variety of different marginalized groups. You know, the reviewing of the resumes. So we know, uh, again, from research that when that there's there's bias in the resume review from the standpoint of someone looks at whether it's an applicant name or maybe the education of an applicant or or, or whatever it might be the possibility exists that there might be a, bi- a bias towards you know certain names that don't sound as anglo-saxon right so you can get you can get software that can help you to remove names we we try to avoid using the term blinding resumes because i don't think that's really an appropriate way of saying that yeah. but we we can we can get 
uh, software that could remove names, but what if you're a company that you can't afford the software? What could you do? Mm-hmm. Just have maybe a couple of people review the short list of resumes to ensure that we're bringing the right candidates to the next step, right? So I think having more eyes, right, on a resume can help reduce bias because that's what we're trying to do. Yep. An- another thing probably I would suggest with maybe a more structured approach would be creating a simulation, right? Not necessarily mm-hmm. tests, but a simulation that represents how they would actually work on the job during the interview process. So with our software development team, we use something called a pairing exercise. What it is, is we take an actual problem that we're working on and the prospective candidate will work with two developers to try to solve the problem together, right? And it shows the interviewers how the person works and it shows the, the, the person interviewing how our other developers work. And based upon that pairing exercise, it helps our team to understand not if they got everything perfect, but how they approach problems. And I think that's very, very, very important. And so instead of just kind of a typical interview with just questions and answers and using your gut feeling, right? Have more of a, a simulation, right? That could really show you how people work. We have a design challenge. And we actually have them come in for about half a day and we pay them for their time as well. So, you know, we want to value the fact that, you know, they're, they're giving up half of a day of their time and, and, and we do pay them. So that's, that's something we, we thought long and hard about is how do we figure out because our team is so, we're, we're a small team and, you know, we're really collaborative and we are problem centered in terms of the way that we approach our work. So to figure out if this person's the right fit and if they actually even like the work that we do, we, we do that simulation as well. So that's, that's cool. I'm glad to know we're on the right path. There we go. Absolutely. So one of the things that people say is that I like this person, but I'm not sure if they're going to be a good fit with our culture. What do you say about that in terms of, you know, how can, how can we sort of, I know that that can be a barrier really around inclusive hiring practices. And that can be one of those flags that people throw up. What do you, do you look for culture fit or how do we get around that? Yeah. So, so I think companies should, well, I'm going to give you two things. So number one, I think companies should strive to change their language from culture fit to what we call culture ad. You don't want to just have people fit into the mold of what your company is currently doing. You want people who come in and they add to innovation, add to creativity, add to productivity. And those people, and we know that, you know, people who have come from diverse experiences and backgrounds have the ability to do that through research. The second thing I would say is creating what I call um, a structured process in your interview that includes evaluations. Hmm. So for example, you know, you can have 10 questions um, that you ask in an interview, but maybe three of those questions are questions you use to evaluate the candidate and score them. And you ask those exact same three questions to every single candidate right? And you score them based upon an answer that you would consider a a low score and an answer that you'd consider a high score to to solving that problem. And then at the end of your process, let's say you have five candidates. And at the end of the day, let's say Katori, who is of indigenous descent, scores 10 out of 10. But we have Fred, right? 
who scores seven out of 10. And let's just say the hiring manager is like, oh, we want to hire Fred. Mm-hmm. Well, then the recruiter has the ability because you've had this structured interview process, right? To go back and advise the hiring manager, listen, you know, why would you like to hire Fred? Because Katori actually scored 10 out of 10 in all of her interviews, right? Versus Fred, who only scored seven out of 10. And the hiring manager might say, oh, I just have this gut feeling. But that's the point of how you erase the gut feeling. It's with data. So that's why I... I I believe in what I call a structured, unstructured model. Mm-hmm. I think that interviewers should be free to ask questions, but in embedded in those questions, there has to be an evaluation point that you can always have data to go, go back to. Yeah, and that gets rid of those implicit biases or those biases that we have or gets rid of that gut feel that block inclusive practices or that, you know, maintain the status quo. Exactly. And I think, I think the goal, see, the the truth is, is this, you know, will we ever be able to eliminate bias? No, because bias is just the way that we function in the earth. It's just the reality, right? It's how we navigate. So I think, you know, bias will always be present. What we're trying to do, do is reduce bias from the standpoint of discrimination in our process. And that's, what's really key. How do we reduce it? and looking at all the different steps on how we do that. So I think we said we had five, when we chatted, we've got five things. So I've got um, looking at initial uh, review of bias. We're looking at the job description, finding ways around having applicant diversity, having that, oh, so the applicant diversity survey, really having that structure within the interview around so you can actually have data points to go back to, to that helps sort of block that culture fit question. And so number five for us. Yeah. So I, I would say kind of, you know, you know, one of the, the, the last points I would want to make on that is diversifying your hiring teams and the importance of it. So yeah. I'll, I'll give you an actual real case, real actual real study. You know, we reviewed several applicants that had applied to a very, very specific position. And what we, well, it was, it was actually a couple of positions. So it was several positions. So we reviewed all the applicants. What we noticed is that at every stage, when we looked at gender, we noticed that the same proportion of men and women were moving to every stage of the interview. It was actually 50%. Every stage of the interview, 50% of the men and women would move forward. Mm-hmm. But then when we got to the final interview, we noticed the difference. The difference was that that 25% of the men would move forward, right, and mm-hmm. into an offer stage, and only 12.5% of the women would move forward, right? And when we dug a little bit deeper, Melissa, what we discovered was that in the interviews where the women were not getting hired, mm-hmm. there were no other females present. Right. Whereas in the interviews where the women were getting hired, typically there was an actual female that was present. So we recognized that we, when we presented this data to our hiring teams, you know, they were like, oh, okay. And then what, what that brought cause to is we need to diversify our hiring teams in different ways so that we ensure that there's no bias <laughs> right, yeah. at the end of the process. 
And so I would encourage anybody who's listening to this and you know, you're, you're a hiring manager, you're, you know, you're a recruiting manager and you're creating different hiring teams, you know, try to, you know, diversify your team, maybe bring in people that are from other cross-functional teams to have a different perspective and, you know, and give you a different perspective on those candidates, you know, that you normally don't have, but by diversifying your hiring team, it's, it can really, really support bringing in greater representation in your organization. You know, one, one final point on this thought is, you know, Google, when they were first starting out, I don't know how much they still use it now, but when they used to hire candidates, they used to have a completely separate team that would review all of the potential hires before making a decision on who they want to bring in. Yeah. And I think there is safety in counsel and in getting support from other people. And so I think diversifying your hiring teams is another great point of how you can reduce bias in the process. Well, that's sort of, yeah, that's that end-to-end there. You've got, you know, when you start by acknowledging that there's bias and and you cap it off with diversifying the, the hiring team, you know, that's really a great way to sort of ensure that throughout the entire process that you're you're doing as much as you can to remove it from, from the hiring process. It's, you know, we're fallible people, but there are, like you said, there are checks and balances and there's ways that you can systematize things so that you are eliminating the places where where our unconscious bias can can creep in. I want to thank you so much, Dean, for for sharing your expertise today and for giving us some really concrete ways that we can uh, look at our hiring practices to make sure that they are more inclusive. And if you're interested in learning more about how you can start to integrate inclusive hiring practices into your workplace, or if you're just beginning to rethink your organizational design, and want to do this through the lens of diversity, inclusion, belonging, and equity, then I would recommend that you reach out to Dean at www.stracity.com. And to everyone who tuned in, I want to thank you again for joining me on Just One Q. If you have any of your own burning questions, please feel free to reach out to me at hello at learningsnippets.ca, or you can write us a review to let us know what you thought of today's episode. Until next time, I'm Dr. Melissa Horn, and this has been Just One Q. This podcast was brought to you by Learning Snippets. Using highly measurable tools and practices, Learning Snippets will help you build a high-performing, inclusive employee culture at scale. Learn more at learningsnippets.ca.